So, uh, last week Paul talked about this story in the Bible uh, from uh, Luke chapter 15. I want to keep talking about it this week and next week. And um, Jesus often taught and tried to explain what he's about through stories. And like every good storyteller, he sets it in a way that you could understand. The problem is the stories he told were meant for 2,000 years ago, which means a lot of the time we don't really get the stories because they're not about Facebook and Instagram and England finally winning the penalty shootout. They're all about things like seed and sowing and fathers and sons and all this sort of stuff. And so it's, it's important that you understand this, the context of what he's doing. And this it's often entitled, in fact, in, in my Bible, it says it's the parable of the lost son, um, which is kind of true, but then kind of not true. And often we call, talk about the prodigal son, which is also kind of true and also kind of not true. Um, so the basic story is um, that a man has two sons, a younger one and an older one. The younger one comes and says, hey, dad, I'd like my inheritance now. Um, and his dad gives him his inheritance now. The older guy stays at home. The son goes off, basically wastes it all, has what he thinks is a fantastic time, comes back, realizes that Actually, he's now spent it all, and everybody's left him. He has nothing. So he goes back to his dad, hoping that he might be able to get a job on his dad's farm, basically. Um, but instead of giving him a job on, on the farm and kind of rebuking him, this dad welcomes him back with incredibly loving arms, which is the basic story. And there's a kind of traditional understanding of the story that is that God is this lovely God, and if you're a big rebel, God loves you and puts his arms around you. That's kind of the basic traditional version. Um, but this story has got so many layers about so much stuff, whether you feel like you're the rebel who's run away or whether you feel like you're the good kid who's always stayed in the house. And it's not like, it's not like the younger sons for the rebels and the older sons for the good kids. It's like there's, there's kind of stories in amongst it all, which is fascinating, as we'll explore. But first of all, I want to see what the word uh, prodigal means. Have we got that there, Phil? So prodigal means recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. Recklessly extravagant. And as you'll see... It's not just the son who's prodigal. It's not just the son who's recklessly extravagant. Um, but before we get in the story, we have to consider the audience as well. So, so before Jesus says these, tells this story, we read these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law mode, this man welcomed sinners and eats with them. Then he told them. And there's actually three parables. It's all about being lost. But this is fascinating. And when it says tax collectors and sinners, that's the, that's the Bible wording for the people who were kind of not the good people in the, in the Jewish faith's eyes. They were not the people who were keeping the laws. They were not the people who were living good, upright lives. They didn't observe the moral laws or the cleanliness laws, and there were all sorts of laws you had to keep back then. And so in the eyes of the Jewish faith, these people were neither loved nor accepted by God. They were the outsiders. So the tax collectors, the sinners, they're the outsiders. And most of those people are trapped in a religious system that they can never get out of, because to live a normal life as a as, as a carpenter or a fisherman, and keep all the laws is extremely difficult. It's also extremely expensive to keep all the laws. So many people were trapped in this system that they could never get out of, knowing that everybody else looked down on them and thought the religious people went, there was no way of ever really moving from one to the other, as it were. But it's all these people who are going to Jesus. All the people who the world at that time said were the unclean and the unwelcome and the unaccepted, they're all the people running to Jesus. And then there's this <clears throat> other type of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're, they're the, in the eyes of, of the country at the time, they're upright, good, respectable, moral, did all the right things, said all the right things. They were the accepted ones, the loved ones. And so there's this fascinating 
two groups of people, and then Jesus tells a story about two sons. So he's trying to link one son to one group of people and one son to another group of people. And lots of people think this parable is about the younger son and the tax collectors and sinners. I think it's more about the older son and the religious people. But that's for next week, because we're just going to look at the younger son this week. But there's these two groups of people who Jesus is talking to. And the story starts off like this, Luke chapter 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his dad, Dad, give me my share of the estate. In other words, give me what's due mine now. Now, normally when Jesus tells a story, he kind of tells this nice story, and then it gets like halfway through, and suddenly somebody does something shocking, abnormal, different, and that's where they're like, oh, what's going on here? This story, though, starts off immediately shocking. Just think about what the younger son is actually asking for. He's basically going, Dad, I want everything that's mine when you die. In other words, I wish you were dead. Now, that doesn't sound too great. In fact, we've, you may have heard it, you may have said it, that you wish somebody were dead. But think, this is 2,000 years ago. This is when honor is the big deal. This is a shame culture. This is where elders are respected and honored. There is only one response in this culture to any son who would say something like that to a dad. And the dad's response in the culture is, you are disowned, get out, you have nothing to do with me because you have disrespected me as a father. That's the only response. So as soon as everybody says that, everybody in the audience, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're all like, what? What son does that? What son asks that of a father? But then it gets even more shocking because it says he divided his property between them. The son, father actually gives the son what he wants. But what's fascinating about this request is the son wants his father's things, but he doesn't really want the father. That's why the younger son is not just for those rebels. You see, the younger son wants the father's things, but doesn't really want the father. Many people want the father's things, his blessings, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his healing, the church family, the care, the prayer, the concern that comes, a WhatsApp group to text people. They're all the father's things. But what about the father? What about just being with dad? Basically, the younger son one goes, I don't want anything to do with you, but I'll have everything that you can give me. Well, I think we can be a bit like that sometimes, can't we? We can enjoy the Father's things. We want to be healed. We want to be blessed. We want his provision. We want friends. We want family. We want people around us. But, but what if all that was stripped away? Would you still want the Father? What if, what if it was just the Father without the Father's things? And what's fascinating is this father. And in this parable, this father is a picture of Father God. This son comes and does the most disrespectful, dishonoring thing ever. And the only response is to kick him out. And yet this father decides he's going to grant the son's request. But it's fascinating because you have to understand what that means. This is 2,000 years ago. He didn't have a bank account. He didn't have shares. He didn't have investments. He's got land and property. For him to give up what his son needs, he has to sell land and property and people. He has to literally tear his life apart. Literally. In fact, the word translated property is the word bias, which literally means life. He has to give his life away. And then remember, this man is standing in an honor and shame culture, and this man is going to reduce what he's got, which means he's going to be shamed by everybody around him, which means everybody else is looking and going, what the chuff are you doing? This son dishonors you? And you bring shame on yourself by getting rid of things? You see, I think the greatest part of this parable in the Father is not when he welcomes him back, it's when he sends him away. 
think what he has to do is send him away. And when he sends him away, he's lost his son as well. So when he, when he grants the request, when it says he grants the request, what that means is that not only does he lose his son, but he also loses honor and respect and all those things that go with it, and he loses a third of all his property. That's the great love of the Father, that he grants the request. He sells property and land at the expense of his own standing and his own reputation. He enjoys a huge loss of honor and respect and the pain of rejected love. He maintains the affection for his son and bears the agony. Just the leaving cost him. There was nothing in that culture that made that request okay. He had no reason to give it. He didn't need to. He had every right to throw him out and disown him, and yet he tears his life apart just because he loves his son and he gives what his son asks for. That's a fascinating thought about what he's like. And then, of course, let's go on. Um, it says this not long after that. So the, son, the father's teared his life apart, given everything, sent his son away, probably thinking he's never going to see him again, has also reduced his standing in the community, all that sort of stuff, given everything. And then it says the younger son got together all he had, set off in distant countries, squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a famine. He began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were in, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say, when father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So in other words, whatever it means to squander his wealth in wild living. Basically, he took everything Father gave him and just spent it on himself. He didn't think about the Father once. He just thought about what he wanted. He invested it all on. He didn't really invest it. He spent it all on himself, his own selfish pleasures. He indulged every desire that he had. Didn't think about the Father once. So the Father's already given it all. He don't, the son doesn't bother about the Father. Never once does he think about him. And then he realizes, okay, here I am. And I can't even eat the pig food. Maybe I'll go back to that. So he has this plan. First of all, he goes, no, no, I need to admit I'm wrong. And I forfeited the right to be a son. And then he intends to ask his dad to make him like one of his hired servants. Which is very clever because this son would have understood the culture. The culture is, you're dead to me now. Everybody else, the father, any other father, this son would have been dead to him. You realize it says towards the end, this son was dead, but now he's alive. He says that towards the end of the parable. What does that mean? It means because he counted him as dead. In, in culture, everybody would have counted him as dead. Of course, this father doesn't, but everybody else would go, you are nothing, you are nobody, you are out of it. They wouldn't have even given me. But this father, this father doesn't count him as dead. This father, even though he's already done all that to him, reacts differently. And he wants to come. He wants to come. He says, I'll be a hired servant. Hired servants were like, uh, probably didn't live on the estate, but were various kinds of craftsmen and tradesmen who earned a wage and lived in a local village. Maybe you could come to the big house, as it were, and kind of do a bit of work, maybe get a glimpse of dad. You think, maybe I can get a glimpse of dad. Maybe I can get a quick glimpse of my brother, but I'll, I'll, and maybe I can pay him back somehow. Maybe I can do something. He's not even thinking he can get in the house. And some of you know the story, but while he was still a long way off, dad saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Just filled with compassion for him. Filled with compassion for him. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
And then it says all the stuff that he did. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. But the father said, quick, best robe, ring, sandals, fine calf. We're celebrating. Now, again, culturally, men 2,000 years ago do not run. Men do not hitch up their robes and expose their legs and run. That would have been a huge no-no in that society. This father breaks every cultural boundary and makes himself a laughing stock in the eyes of the whole community for this son. And so far, this son has done everything to wind up, annoy, and disgrace his dad. This father's no ordinary father. He's waiting, longing. Despite the pain this son's caused, despite the anguish and the loss of reputation, he is desperate to be united. This father is willing to risk more ridicule, more isolation, and more shame, all for the sake of his son, for whom he has already suffered much ridicule, shame, and isolation. So when he sees him, he runs to him. And then he tries and gets this well-rehearsed thing out, but dad doesn't even let him finish it. As Paul was saying last week, he gets the best robe. That would be dad's robe. The best robe in the house would be dad's robe. Immediately, it's about his identity. It's about you're welcome, you're in. He won't have any groveling apologies or, or reasons. He'll just, he won't have him earn his way back into the family. He's just welcomed, just as he is. He gets the, the fattened calf. That would have been reserved for a very special occasion, maybe once every few years. But, but listen. Some of you have heard this many, 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 many times. And it's likely you understand this welcome from the Father is for the rebels, those who have spent some time in wild living, to use the Bible's words. But remember, there is something for everyone in the stories of both the sons. What if the reception the Father gave the younger son when he got it wrong is the only reception the Father knows? What if it's the only reception he knows? What if God doesn't make a distinction between how wrong we get? See, we categorize our errors and our mistakes and our failings. We rank them into small things and big things. And we go out of Father's house every day, as it were, when we get it wrong. I don't think God makes a difference. We, we've seen this story as those who go off for years and years and years and try everything that, that the world thinks is good but might not be good for us. But, but what, if, what if that's Father's response to you every single day? What if every way that you get it wrong. You see, we fall into these kind of confess guilt, confess fall cycles. You know, we, we feel really bad about it. We know we've done something wrong. Maybe there's something we're battling with on a daily, weekly basis, or we're just living so we get it wrong. And we fall into these cycles where we, we go, oh, I'm really sorry, God. Oh, and we try and get back up again. And that takes us a few days. But what if at that moment, God runs to you like he runs to the younger son? What if every day he runs like that to you? What if every day when you just walk a little bit out of the house, he runs after you, waiting? And then when you turn around and say sorry, he's like, no, 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 I don't want to hear you, big, oh, God, I'm really sorry. And, you know, we, I realize we do this. When we call people to say sorry, we ask them to come out. We like make them to make the move towards God. And I realize they have to move towards him, but this story says God moves towards, I realize he's already made a move, but it'd be like, you know, if you've been in church a little while or, or, or a while ago when we used to see, invite people to come to know Jesus, then we'd kind of ask them to come out. Really what we should have done is, is ran to them and met them halfway rather than wait for them to get all the way here. That's what we should have done because that's what this father does. Just runs and meets them halfway. What if we started to understand that when we get small things wrong, when we make mistakes, and we constantly fall over with that same issue we're trying to beat, that the response of the Father to us is like it is 
to the younger son. Whilst you are still mumbling your confession prayer, God is running to you. Whilst you are metaphorically, as it were, so not, not literally, but maybe in your mind, crawling back to him because you feel so terrible, he's running to you and he gets up and before you can even get out, your God, I'm sorry, prayer says, no, no, get up, come on. You're part of this house, come on. Get off your knees, forget, we're going, come on. What if God is like that? You see, just go back to that first, first slide, the prodigal one. You see, it's the father that's prodigal. The father is recklessly extravagant with his love. Yes, the son went away, but the father's the prodigal. The father and his reckless extravagance extends to you every day, no matter how big or how small it extends to you. And every time you get it wrong, and I know you get it wrong because you like me and you're human, and every time you make a mistake, and I know like me, sometimes we go through these whole cycles and we don't get ourselves out of it, and it feels horrible while we're in there, but hey, guess what? Maybe we need to have a different picture of the father. Maybe we need to see the father like this father. Not just for those who we think have got it terribly wrong, but for me, every day, every minute. And as soon as I turn and go, God, I'm sorry, he's there. Running here. He's not waiting for you. He has no desire that you stay in that place. He's not sat there going, well, she'll learn a lesson if she just stays there for a couple of days longer. That's how we think God's like. But he's not. He runs to you. Puts a ring on your finger, sandals on your feet, a robe on you. What's that all about? It's about welcoming you back in. It's about giving you, reminding you. Not giving you it back because you don't lose it. It's just reminding you of your identity. That's what he does all the time. He's for you. He's with you. He loves you. And he is recklessly extravagant towards you. And the enemy wants to keep you in that place of kind of guilt. But his love towards you, his grace, is just incredible. And listen, you don't use that as an excuse for just... Doing, not, not dealing with things. Because not dealing with things hurts you and other people around you. But whilst you're dealing with them, whilst you're doing it, whilst you're trying to get it right, it's there all the time. Okay, I want us to pray. Because I... I don't know. I think, I think there's probably some things that go on in all of us that we know we get wrong. And, we, and we're talking about this thing called repentance, which is basically not just saying sorry to God when we get it wrong, but it's turning and going a different direction. And often if, we've, if we keep falling over with the same things, which many people do, then it's difficult to kind of see God running towards you. But I just, um, I just felt there might, there might be some people who just need to kind of go, God, I'm sorry. And I felt like, as an expression of God coming towards you, you might want to stay in your seat and I might want to come to you. So you stay right where you are. You don't have to move at all. Because the Father runs. I don't really want to run around because I'm already a bit square. But, but I just felt like there might, there might be just some of you. And I don't want to know what it is. I'm not, I just wanted to exemplify. And of course, I'm not the Father, but I just wanted to exemplify him coming to you and taking it from you and going, you're forgiven, you're welcomed. It's between you and, the, you and the Father. But So can we do that? Let's just have a moment. And uh, you'll have to stick your hand up or something, otherwise I won't know whether I'm... But maybe, I, I don't know. But let me pray then. Father, we just want to thank you that you are a prodigal God. We thank you for your reckless extravagance towards us. And we thank you that your heart to run to us, Father, is there all the time. Lord, we are sorry. We realize we get it wrong. We make mistakes. We hurt people. We hurt ourselves, Lord. We hurt you. Lord, we realize that. But Lord, we also know that we are sorry, Father. 
And I want to learn to live more and more in your redeeming, recklessly extravagant grace, Father. I want to see more and more, Lord, when I got that wrong, Father, that you run to me and immediately remind me of my identity. Father, help us to have that image more and more in our minds, Lord. I come against, Father, the schemes of the enemy, Lord, that seek to keep us in that place, seeks to put on us guilt, Father, and shame, and all those things, Lord, that he puts on us. I come against those things, Father, and I say your grace breaks through, and your love breaks through, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Father runs towards you every single time you beat yourself up, every single time you think you've got it wrong, no matter how big or how small, the Father runs out towards you and wraps his arms around you. Amen? I'm convinced that's the only response he knows to us turning to him. The only response. He loves you and he runs towards you in beautiful, amazing ways. I love the Bible. It's so amazing how you can get so much out of one story. And next week I'm going to talk about the older brother because there's tons in that story as well for all of us. It's amazing. I don't think we needed to put lights on. I need to add 3,000 watts of heat to me. Be blessed. Enjoy. And just, you know, if you don't, if you're not quite sure about this Jesus, or you know, you're kind of like going, what's all this about? He's just a God that loves you a bit, thinks you're fantastic, and uh, created you to do incredible, amazing things. And he wants to walk with you and know you and love you and be a part of you. And at any moment, you can just go, that sounds good, and explore what it might mean to be with him. Because it is just most wonderful to know that there is somebody who loves you like that. As much as we might want to find it on this earth, you won't find somebody who loves you like Jesus. As much as you might want to be loved like that, and you do want to be loved like that because you were created to be loved like that, but only Jesus can make that. So I want to encourage you. Just go, all right. I want to explore this Jesus moment because he is the most wonderful person ever. Amen.